The following message by Dr. Matt Thornton is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. If you'll find Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1 and kind of keep both of those scriptures handy. We're going to bounce back and forth between those two today. Personally, I, I love Christmas time and I love everything about it, including just the secular American cultural traditions. Um, you know, I like trees and lights and cookies, and I really like cookies, you know. Um, gifts and movies and ugly sweaters and all those sorts of things. And I love spending time with my family and seeing smiles on my children's faces. And many of you probably relate to things like that. There's a lot of people who anticipate Christmas time because we, we do talk about how it's a time of joy and hope and things like that. But ultimately, our joy does not come from those traditions. There's nothing wrong with them. But as Christians, our joy comes today and every day from the fact that God became a man to save sinners. And that man was Jesus Christ. Jesus was not actually born on December 25th, but it's never wrong to celebrate his birth. We ought to do that every day of our lives. We focus on it a lot during this season, and that's wonderful. It is about God becoming a man. God's fullness in a helpless baby. I can't explain that. It's a miracle. It's about fulfilled prophecies. It's about God keeping His Word. Love, grace, mercy, joy, peace, all of those things offered to a dark and hopeless world. It's about Mary's Creator becoming her Son. about the Son of God leaving His throne in heaven for a manger, exchanging His glorious robes for swaddling clothes, and trading the company of angels for shepherds, and ultimately a bunch of sinners. A bunch of sinners who would reject Him and crucify Him. This is about the timeless one stepping into history. And that's important to understand. As we begin this sermon series, we have to understand that although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's not where His story begins. In fact, His story doesn't begin it has no beginning. John opened his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. John wrote, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John even taught that he's the Creator. John wrote that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the uncreated creator. 
He existed before time, before space, before matter. Is that incomprehensible? Maybe. Perhaps to our finite minds. But He is God now. He always has been God. And He always will be God. Therefore, He truly is unsearchable and limitless. And yet to rescue us from the consequences of sin and death, the limitless God miraculously became a man. John wrote that the Word became flesh. He never became God. He just was God. But He became flesh and dwelt among us. John said, we beheld His glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, we need to understand that Jesus has no beginning because He is God. But the Bible does reveal to us how His birth as a man took place in time. We're going to bounce back and forth between Luke and Matthew this morning to get sort of a bird's eye view of how it unfolded. And as we do this, Remember why this happened. Remember why God became a man. Remember why Jesus was born. It's because the because you and I were sinners. The uncreated creator became a man because we needed a savior. Let's start in Luke chapter 1. We're just going to jump in at verse 26 and read through verse 38. When the angel Gabriel revealed God's plan to Mary. Verse 26. Luke records that in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, if you look back earlier in Luke, in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, since uh, seeing I know not a man? Verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, <clears throat> she has also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. We don't have time to dissect each verse, but I want to point out two main things that we need to realize. First, this whole scene is less about Mary and more about God's grace. 
The greeting in verse 28 that Gabriel offered her of her being highly favored, that's one word that's just built off the word grace. And the word in verse 30 that's translated favor in the King James, it is just the word grace. Mary wasn't worthy to be the mother of Jesus. There's no human ever to live who's worthy of that blessing and that honor. It was a gracious gift from God. But Mary was humble. If you look down at verse 38, she called herself a handmaid. Well, that just simply means servant. And we can all learn a whole lot from Mary's attitude here in that she was a humble servant of God, willing to let God use her for His glory. Imagine what other people would have thought about this young girl carrying a child even though she had not yet consummated her marriage with Joseph. But she was willing to be God's servant. This world needs more people like Mary who care more about serving God and less about what other people think about them. But the second main point I want you to realize is that Gabriel's message teaches the virgin birth of Jesus. Mary believed him. Mary believed Gabriel. But from a human perspective, she just didn't understand how this would happen since she had never been with a man in order for it to be a possibility. How would this baby have a father? How would the baby even be? And Gabriel reveals the miracle of the virgin birth. And he explained to Mary the miracle that the Holy Spirit would somehow overshadow her and she would conceive. Therefore, her son would be holy. Her boy would be God's son. That way, since this son was God's son, he could fulfill those weighty descriptions in verse 32 and verse 33 about being great, about being the son of the highest, about reigning on David's throne forever and ever. The doctrine of the virgin birth is crucial to Christianity. If Jesus Christ wasn't born of a virgin, we can all go home. And there's two reasons why it's so important. First is maybe the obvious one. If we say that Jesus is the Son of God, which the Bible teaches that He is, then His Father must be God and not man. If He had an earthly father, He would be no different than any other man born in history. And so this doctrine is crucial to Jesus' very identity, to who He is. He is God clothed in flesh. He is deity. And I want you to consider this. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin doesn't make Him deity. He was deity long before He was born of a virgin. But since He already was deity... The virgin birth was a necessity. And the second reason the virgin birth is so crucial is because we understand from Scripture that our sinful human nature is transferred to us through our fathers and not our mothers. We're all sinners because of Adam, not because of Eve. 
Yeah, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that sin came into the world through one man. And he said, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You may remember the story in the Garden of Eden. Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. He knowingly disobeyed God. He willfully disobeyed God. He understood the command. He understood the consequences. And he did not care. And he disobeyed. And when he did that, all of his offspring, raise your hand if you're Adam's offspring. That's all of us. Every single human who would ever be born was plunged into the ocean of sin. We're sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. But thank God Jesus was not born of Adam, was he? He had no earthly father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so the virgin birth... is how Jesus is all God and all man, yet without a sinful human nature. Therefore, God the Father would accept His sinless, perfect blood on our behalf because He was one of us. He is one of us. But He's also God. If Jesus were just another man born of an earthly father and earthly mother, then we're all doomed to hell. His life and his death were nothing special. He would be no more fit to be the Savior than any one of us. So this announcement to the Virgin Mary that she would bear God's Son is one of the most important announcements in history. Because without it, we're doomed it didn't just affect Mary. It affected you. It affected me. Because without it, we have no Savior. But it was a little different for Mary than it was for us, right? She was un involved in a different way, obviously. It's going to change her life, and it would also make her future with Joseph a little shaky. Let's say it that way. Because remember, the two were betrothed. Luke mentioned that in verse 27. The word espoused may have been used in your translation. And this word espoused or betrothal, it just means they were set to be married. And this, this betrothal period lasted about a year. And in their culture, it's stronger than what we call an engagement. That's the best thing we have to describe it as, but it, it was stronger than that. During this betrothal period, the man and the woman were considered married. You could call them husband and wife. When we read Matthew's story in a minute, you'll see Joseph called Mary's husband. And yet the wedding ceremony had not yet taken place, though. The couple was not living together yet, and the marriage had not yet been consummated, and Matthew and Luke both make that clear. So during this year, the man is normally hard at work, building the home, preparing the home, getting things ready for them to have a place to, to live together, prove that he was responsible proved that he was man enough to take care of his family. And you all know Joseph. He was a carpenter by trade. And so he had some skill and some talent, some know-how in working with stone and working with wood to prepare and build their home. And I'm sure like any other young man, I'm sure from time to time as he worked, his mind drifted. 
He daydreamed about Mary and their future together. What would God have in store for their lives? Wonder if God will ever bless us with children. I'm sure he was excited about the two of them to begin their lives together. But then at some point during this year-long period, he discovered that Mary's already expecting a child. Of course, he knows he's not the father. So his heart falls. I'm sure he was heartbroken. Obviously, Joseph assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him. If you look at Matthew, we'll see that. Matthew chapter 1, we'll see Joseph's perspective, sort of how he responded to this. Matthew 1, verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 states, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now I'm sure Mary told Joseph about the angel's visit. I'm sure Mary assured Joseph of her faithfulness. But honestly, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, okay? We, we, we have the benefit of looking back in history. We know the story from Scripture. Joseph was living it. He doesn't know how this story ends. In his mind, there's only one possibility. And yet in verse 19, we, we get a glimpse into his character. He was a just man. That word just just simply means righteous. He was a righteous man, which means he wasn't sinless, but it means he was faithful. He had faith. Righteousness comes by faith. And so Joseph was a man who trusted and believed God. That's going to be important. He trusts God. And his, his faithful character, his righteous character, led him to two decisions. The first one is that he just concluded that he could not go through with their wedding and marriage. He planned to end their betrothal. See this, this phrase, he ended to put her away. In that culture, this betrothal period was considered such a binding relationship that the only way to officially end it was with an official divorce. This was not some light manner that Joseph was thinking about. It's not like what we call a breakup. It was way more than that. So this was not an easy decision, but he felt like it was the right thing to do since she was having a child that was not his. But we also see that he did not want her to be publicly shamed or disgraced. I'm amazed at the grace Joseph has, even though I'm sure he felt betrayed. And yet he has this grace in his heart towards Mary that while he wants to do what's right, at the same time he feels the need to guard Mary's reputation for her protection so that she is not any more publicly shamed than she has to be. Joseph's a fascinating man to me. He's a righteous man. But look at verse 20 through 25. Before he could follow through with this quiet divorce, God intervened, didn't he? Look at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. The angel of the Lord that appeared to Joseph in this dream confirmed Mary's story, confirmed her words to Joseph. She had not been unfaithful to him. The Holy Spirit enabled her to conceive, and so he did not need to be afraid at all to take her as his wife. I want you to think about this. Mary's son was not proof of her unfaithfulness, but rather proof of God's faithfulness. Because Mary's son was the fulfillment of these prophecies. He would be the Savior, verse 21 mentioned. And Joseph was commanded, the same thing as Mary earlier, to name him Jesus. Why was that important? The name Jesus essentially means Yahweh saves. And that was fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of of a virgin conceiving. He mentions this prophecy from Isaiah and that child being Emmanuel which means God with us. You put these two names together and you understand more about Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he is the Savior. Can you imagine the, the sort of roller coaster of emotions that Joseph went through? I really, I really can't imagine. And so verse 24 has always amazed me and encouraged me. Is that when Joseph wakes up, No questions asked. He obeys. He was a righteous man, right? It means he trusted God. He trusted God and he obeyed. When he knew the truth and God had laid out for Joseph what he needed to do, he just did it. Man, that's too easy of an application. (laughs) When you know what the Bible says and you understand what God desires, just do it. Just obey. Don't argue with God. Don't second guess God. Don't doubt God. Don't disobey God. Trust what he says and follow it. And let him use you. He's going to do that with Joseph. Okay, so the good news is that Mary and Joseph are on board. They're both willing uh, servants. They've submitted to God's plan. Unfortunately, the bad news is they're both from Nazareth. And Micah... A prophet from the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. What are we going to do about that? Did God forget that prophecy? We'll just sweep that one under the rug later on. Did he choose the wrong couple? No. Look at Luke chapter 2. God is so sovereign that he would use a decree from the Roman emperor during the time to get this unknown couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Let's read the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. 
And this taxing or this registration was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Isn't that convenient? Caesar Augustus just happened to issue this decree. Joseph and Mary traveled to Joseph's ancestral home, which just so happened to be Bethlehem. And while they were there, it just so happened that Jesus was born. Whew! We dodged a bullet on that one, right? God's providence is remarkable. It's so remarkable. Verse 6 and 7 took Luke just two short verses to record the most significant birth in human history. If we'll let Luke's brief words speak for themselves, we'll have a decent idea about that night, even though it's not... It's not everything we want. We want Luke to go on and on and on here, and he really doesn't. But if we let these verses just speak, we'll understand some about it, but I do want to give you a fair warning. It just might mess up our traditions. Notice in these verses, Luke records that while they were there, the days were accomplished. Sorry, but they weren't rushing into Bethlehem at night with Mary just about to give birth at any moment frantically looking for a place to stay. I don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. But Mary's days were fulfilled during their stay. That's what Luke plainly says. Now it doesn't make for the most exciting Hollywood scene. But it's just what happened. It's the truth. Luke also wrote there was no room for them in the inn. Now tradition says that Mary gave birth in a, in a stable because of that uncompassionate, mean innkeeper, right, who, who turned him away. But if you notice, Luke never mentions an innkeeper. That's one of those, like, trivia questions. What did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? There wasn't an innkeeper, right? It's not here. And remember, her days were accomplished while they were in Bethlehem. So where were they staying this whole time? Well, remember, Joseph's from Bethlehem, right? That's his ancestral family home. So they're probably staying with a relative who still lived there. However, since all the family came, we've got a pretty crowded house. Remember, everybody had to go back to their ancestral home for registration. And so it would have been really crowded in the main lodging area of the house. And a lot of times in Palestine during this time, they would have a two-story house. That sounds maybe really fancy, but just one room on the bottom and one room on the top. Okay. The main living area was upstairs in what was called the upper room or the guest room. And this word in that Luke uses, it actually just means lodging place. Okay. It doesn't mean Motel 6. The only other place in Scripture where this word is used is later on in the Gospels when Jesus and his disciples go to the upper room. And he institutes the Lord's Supper and gives his final discourse the night he was betrayed. It's the only other time this word is used to describe that upper level of a home. It's also interesting that Luke, in his own gospel, 
when he records the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that Samaritan takes the injured man to an inn to be cared for, he doesn't use this word. He uses a completely different word for inn. Okay, so what are you saying, Brother Matt? Well, what probably happened was this. Joseph and Mary are staying with Joseph's family, but the upper room of the house is crowded. Too many of Joseph's extended family there. Mary would have no private place to give birth. There's no room for that. So they went downstairs, away from the crowd, to the floor level of the house where she could have the baby Jesus. On cooler nights, some families would bring in their livestock to this floor area of the house, which is explains why you would have a manger there. No uncompassionate innkeeper. No rushing into Bethlehem just in the nick of time. It's just a young virgin girl who didn't want to give birth in front of Joseph's family. No place for that. Now, I know that's not as glamorous and as exciting as we grew up thinking it was. But it's what happened. How dare Luke mess up our traditions? Right? I know that those... Those details here, we're not talking about big doctrinal issues, whether it was a stable or a lower room. or Okay, I, I understand that, but there's a lesson here. Our beliefs must be shaped by God's Word, not our traditions. Because sometimes traditions are dangerous. Not always, but they can be. God's Word is always right. So we need to read the Bible and we need to allow its straightforwardness to speak to us Allow its truthfulness to impact what we believe. Don't take our beliefs and try to find them in Scripture. You let Scripture tell you what to believe, and then you believe it. Well, let's keep reading, though. Even though Jesus' birth was recorded with just two verses, it's worthy of a grand announcement, right? And so God's going to do that. God's going to announce his son's birth, but he's not going to choose the temple priests to hear it. He's not going to choose the Sanhedrin council members to hear it, not the wealthiest people in Jerusalem. He's going to announce his son's birth to a group of dirty, stinky shepherds. Look at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels... Uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The reason that shepherds were an unexpected group to receive this message was because they were basically near the bottom of the social ladder in ancient Israel. Okay, they were sort of outcasts because sheep required care seven days a week, right? They don't take the weekend off. They still need care. And so shepherds were men who could not come regularly to the temple. They were considered ceremonially unclean. Most of them were uneducated and viewed as unskilled. 
a little bit later than the New Testament, shepherds weren't even allowed to, uh, to offer witnesses in court cases. We can't believe them. They're just shepherds. And yet that's the group that God announces the birth of his son to. He, dis, he, he chooses this despised, lowly group of men. Why would he do that? I mean, he could have chosen any group, any person. Well, I believe one reason is because it demonstrated that Christ was born for all. Not just the religious, not just the wealthy, not just the elite. The angel said, this is good news to all people. It also fits beautifully with what we know about Jesus, doesn't it? Why would you not announce the birth of the Lamb of God to a group of shepherds? In fact, these shepherds in Bethlehem were the very shepherds who raised the lambs that were one day brought to the temple to be sacrificed. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lamb of God who would lay down His life for the sins of the world was born in Bethlehem and his birth announced to the very shepherds who raised the lambs who would one day be sacrificed. And so the shepherds with this news, look at verse 15 through 20. They go to find the lamb. Verse 15, Luke recorded, And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Turn quickly to Matthew chapter 2. And we've got one more section of Scripture to read, and, and we'll see that shepherds were not the only ones who sought the Savior. Okay, it was not on the same night, but at some point over the next two years, wise men from the east came to worship Him. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but somebody told me one time that they have a nativity scene at home, and they take the wise men and put them like on a different shelf. <laughs> and I, I thought that was great. So look at, look at Matthew chapter 2, and let's read the first 18 verses, okay? Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among prince of, Judah, of the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That's from Micah 5.2. The chief priests understood that was a prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah. So verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, guess what Joseph did? He took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Joseph just obeyed. Verse 15, and, there was, uh, and, and it was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Herod was a wicked ruler. And this is not the only story of his cruelty. Herod was a man who killed people close to him when he was paranoid. He killed wives. He killed his sons. Caesar Augustus famously once said that he would rather be Herod's hog than his son. Not only was Herod wicked, but he was not a Jew. He was only king because he was appointed king by Rome. And yet look back at verse 2 and notice who the wise men are searching for. They're searching for the one who's born king of the Jews. Uh-oh, <laughs> Herod's got problems now, right? Someone who is born with the right to rule? The birthright? I don't have that. And so Herod tried to manipulate the wise men to learn the whereabouts of Jesus so that he could kill him. More of God's sovereignty is on display as he warned the wise men, don't go back to Herod. He warned Joseph, go to Egypt to protect Mary and the boy. And it's no coincidence that all this just fulfilled more prophecy. God's providence is incredible. Let's read just a few more verses and finish this chapter. Verse 19 through 23. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Boy, there's a lot of moving parts in the story of Jesus' birth and the first couple of few years of his life here. If we're not amazed at God's sovereignty and providence, something's wrong with our hearts. We can also learn a lot from the people, though, in the stories. From Mary, we should learn humility, the willingness to serve God, 
She was willing to serve God. It didn't matter what other people thought. Serve God in your life from a humble, uh, from a humble heart. Don't worry about what everybody else thinks. You worry about pleasing God. Secondly, from Joseph, we should learn obedience. When you know what God wants, do it. Every single time Joseph was instructed to do something, he did it, no questions asked. From the shepherds and the wise men, I want you to consider that Jesus is worth finding. Don't overlook the fact that the shepherds left their sheep to find the Lamb of God and the wise men were willing to journey to find the King. Imagine how tragic it would have been for one of those shepherds to say, you guys go ahead. Somebody's got to stay with the sheep tonight. What if one of the wise men would have said, guys, it's going to be a long trip. I'm going to stay home. There's nothing in this world worth holding on to and missing Jesus Christ. His birth gives men the opportunity to find God. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not making it about our efforts. When nothing in our power could make it to Him, He came to us and gave us hope. So in a way, this story is about you. But it's not about you in a, in a self-indulgent, materialistic, greedy manner that sometimes our world kind of infuses those things into Christmas. You know, how many presents do I have to open? How many gift cards did I get? How many cookies can I eat? That's a selfish way to make it all about you, right? But in a way, it is about you because Jesus was born for you. The uncreated creator became a man because he loves you so much, he wanted to save you from your sins and he knew he's the only person that could do it. No one else could. No one. Be thankful he was willing. Be thankful that he was willing to be born that night so that one day he could die. His story did not begin in Bethlehem, but his life on earth did. Over the next few months, we're going to see some of the most important and most impactful events in his life. I pray that as we, as we study these events that Scripture will teach us to love our Savior more as we journey through his life, I pray that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that you'll find him. There's nothing worth holding on to and losing Jesus. If He's convicting you, repent of your sins and trust Him. And he'll save you forever. Jesus would later tell a man named Zacchaeus that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's every one of us. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer.
Father, we're thankful for your word, for its faithfulness to record truthfully everything that happened that we need to know, Lord. And our hearts truly cannot understand or explain how you would become a man. But we trust it. We believe it. We have faith. And we're thankful that you did that to save us. I pray that you will draw us closer to you, Lord. And those who have never trusted in Jesus would do so. We just praise you for who you are and we await the second coming of your son. When he does reign as king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.